Galatians 2, we're going to try to cover the whole chapter tonight. Okay, I'm going to start with a trivia question. The Secret Service was not originally started to protect the president. Does anybody know why it was started? Anybody? I can't hear. What? Treasury. Treasury, yeah, well, they, were, they worked for the Treasury Department. Do you know what specifically they were? their mission was? Counterfeiting, yes, to catch counterfeiters and to stop counterfeiting. But after President Lincoln was assassinated, they shifted into the role of protecting the president and others in our country. Uh, now, why? Why do we have this organization that guards the leaders of our nation? Well, because you have to assume every time the president goes somewhere, his life is in danger. And the president is important. Some of you have lived through the death of a president, the violent death of a president. That's a really disruptive thing for a nation. So last Sunday in, in church, we talked about how the church is supposed to be the pillar of the truth, uphold the truth of the gospel in a world that doesn't believe it. And the reason why the church is so important in that role is because the gospel is always in danger. This doesn't mean the gospel is fragile, but it's always under attack. You look through history, you look, even in the, in the times of the scriptures, there are always, always, always forces, people, philosophies that seek to distract from, distort, or even destroy the gospel. And what's surprising is how often those forces, those attacks come from within the church, not from outside. And that's certainly the case in what we're going to look at tonight. Now, just for context, chapter one and two are about Paul defending his apostleship. So it's kind of autobiographical. It is autobiographical. Paul's telling his story, but not exhaustively. He's just telling, here's how you know you can trust me as an apostle. And in chapter one, he finished up by telling us about how he came to know Christ and then did not immediately go to visit the apostles or any other human being. He didn't get his uh, apostleship from any group on earth. He didn't learn the lessons of the gospel from anybody else. He had a direct revelation from God. This is part of his way of saying, this is why you know I'm an apostle and not just one more evangelist. I didn't just hear Peter or John or James preaching and say, well, that's pretty good stuff. I think I'll add my own spin to it, which is how a lot of false teaching starts. No, Paul says, this is your proof. I heard this directly from Jesus himself. And then he says, I spent 14 years after that first visit to Jerusalem, 14 years in Syria and Cilicia. That means back home in Tarsus and then later in Antioch, where he and Barnabas and three other men were leaders of that church, that first interracial Jew and Gentile church. And then we'll pick up the story with verse one. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. By the way, I should say this every time, but there's some new people here. I'm reading out of the ESV. If you have uh, you know, a Bible on your phone and you want to switch to that translation, uh, that will make it easier for you to follow along. So what Paul's talking about is his second visit to Jerusalem. He's going through this. So you see the gospel that I received came from Jesus, but it was also the same gospel that was being preached in Jerusalem. 
So when I went up there to Jerusalem, he says, it was sort of, I mean, there were re- other reasons for the visit, but one of the things that was be- beneficial for him, Paul says, is I had the chance to have my ministry to the Gentiles either affirmed or condemned. I would know whether I was on, on the same page with the people who had walked with Jesus himself. And he brings Titus along. Why does he mention that? Well, Titus was Greek. He was not a Jew. Paul brought Titus with him to Jerusalem. Titus, I'm sure, was the only uncircumcised person in that room, in that room full of people as they hashed out the way the church would relate to Gentiles from then on. Now, why did Paul bring him? I think, and we don't know, but I think he wanted the the whole church to see this is what a Gentile Christian looks like. Most of them had never met one. The only Gentiles they knew were the Roman soldiers who walked around you know, cursing them and, and oppressing them, or the you know the the Gentile merchants and others who tried to cheat them in business. Here's a guy who's not circumcised, who's not a, a Jew, who loves Jesus just as much as you do, who has the Holy Spirit just as much as you do. It was sort of a, a, a test case. Look, look what God can do. Now, here's what's interesting: the, the commentaries I read, and I read a couple believe that in verse 3, when it says, even Titus was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, they think that implies that there were people in the church in Jerusalem who said, oh, he's Greek, let's get him circumcised, and that Paul had to talk them out of it. Now, I don't know, I can't prove that, but that's you know Greek scholars who are better at Greek than I am, which is a lot. Um, that's the way they read it. And that makes me think, I just think it's, it's humorous because it didn't happen to me. <laughs> if you're Titus, you're sitting there going, wait, what are they talking about? And really, you, had a, you definitely had an opinion on which way you wanted that to turn out. He must have gone. Whew. So, verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, these false brothers he's talking about, these are the ones he's going to, these are his rivals, his enemies. These are the ones he is arguing against throughout the book of Galatians. These are the ones who came to Galatia and told the people there, you're not really saved because you've never become Jewish. You've never converted You've never, your men haven't been circumcised. You're not following the law. You've got to do things the right way. And it's disturbed these poor young Christians into thinking they're not really believers. They're not really disciples. They're not really saved. These false brothers, it's interesting to think about. They were motivated by what you and I might call patriotism. Now, patriotism is a good thing, isn't it? We always think of it as good, and most of the time it is. And yet there's a dark side. When patriotism outstrips love of God, it can be a bad thing. Let me explain what I mean. So these were proud Jews in a, in a nation that had always been, in a people group that had always been in the minority, that had always been, uh, aside from when David was king and Solomon, the weaker nation always under threat. There were times in Jewish history before this and would be after this when rulers would literally forbid them to circumcise their children. And if they heard that a family had circumcised their, their little baby boy, they'd come in and find them or worse, throw them in jail or maybe even kill them. So this circumcision had become 
very much a sign of national pride. I know it sounds ridiculous to say, but but to a Jew, it was the way you and I think about the flag. But even more so, because it wasn't just it wasn't just a sign of national pride. It was a sign of uh, it was a sign of ethnicity, but it was also a sign of obedience to God and devotion to the one true God. And so, for them, that was everything. And now they hear that this guy Paul is going around saying, "Yeah, I don't need to be circumcised." What are you talking about? You're, you're following the Jewish Messiah. How could you not? How could you not do what we've gone through? How could you? How could you disregard? the sacred traditions that have held our people together for thousands of years. Do you understand now why some of the zeal was there? And Paul probably understood this too because he used to feel that way himself. He was a zealous person for the gospel, uh, not for the gospel, for for the law of Moses. I mean, as he says in Philippians 3, when he's listing his pre-Christian accomplishments, what does he say? I'm I'm a, a Hebrew of Hebrews circumcised on the eighth day. That's a sign. I, I didn't wait. My parents didn't wait on the eighth day, just as it was supposed to be. They took me to the temple and they had it done. That shows how devoted I am. And so for them, this was a huge deal. Paul says, though, the truth of the gospel was in jeopardy in their nationalism, in their patriotism. Why? Because if they stuck, if they won the day, if they won the day, and from then on, any Gentile who had to be saved, who, who wanted to follow Jesus, had to be circumcised or at least follow the law of Moses, then what that meant was salvation isn't by grace after all. It's law. Then Jesus, Jesus didn't save us. He was just someone we should follow to salvation. And salvation is still found in the law. Then Jesus is no different than Abraham, than Moses, than David, than any of the prophets. Then there's no salvation by grace anymore. It's by what we do. Think about that. So you and I, none of us, if if these guys won the day, think about the language we use. I was saved when I was nine years old. I wouldn't say that if these guys were right, because I wouldn't know. I don't know if I'm saved until I reach glory in the judgment day. Did I do well enough? Did I follow the law well enough? Think about that. What we would lose. So when he says in verse 3, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved, he's not exaggerating. Now, you and I both know that God's in charge. And if Paul hadn't stepped up, God would have provided someone else to. But what we can acknowledge was Paul was the one who stepped up and said, I'm going to stand in the gap. I'm going to defend the gospel against these attacks. Verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. He's talking about the apostles, by the way. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me from mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So first of all, I need to address something. If you're paying attention, you probably 
detect a note of disrespect, it seems, toward the apostles. He seems to be speaking in a kind of a disrespectful tone about James, who's the brother of Jesus, Peter and John. Now, why is that? Now, some of it might be the difference in translation, but it's clear. He's not, he's not showing reverence for those men. He keeps saying, you know, people think they're great. I, it doesn't matter to me what they are because God doesn't care. God loves all people equally. Those who reputedly were pillars of the church, he says, things like that. Now, why is he saying this? I think Peter, I'm sorry, I think Paul is trying to do two things here. He's walking a delicate tightrope. On the one hand, he wants us to know, he wants to remind us that the apostles in Jerusalem are after all just men. Now, they're chosen by God to do some amazing things. God gave them the, the ability to write scripture. God gave them the ability to lead the early church. There's never been an apostle since this generation like those men. You understand that. Never, never again in human history, unless God does something we don't expect, will there be a person who, when he speaks, it's God speaking. So yeah, they're special men, but they're still just men. They're sinners. Paul wants us to understand that. What matters, he's saying, is the gospel that comes from God, not the people who preach it. And that was even true in the first century of men like Peter and Paul and James and John. If it was true then, how much more true is it today when it's just ordinary people who aren't even apostles standing behind pulpits and writing books and making podcasts? The other thing he's trying to do is prove to the Galatians that those original apostles and me are on the same page. They may be just men, but I recognize they have authority. And when I told them my gospel, they stuck out their hand and said, yep, you've got it. You and we're, we're doing the same good work. You go to the, to the Gentiles, we'll focus on the Jews, and everything will be okay. Now, church tradition says eventually all of those original apostles ended up in other nations preaching the gospel. And you can go back through history and, and look at those stories, which aren't in Scripture, so we don't know how true they are. But for now, for these early days, in you know, the 30s and 40s AD, the division of labor was... We'll focus on the Jews. You and Barnabas focus on the Gentiles. So, verse 11. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, that's where Paul and Barnabas were stationed, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray in their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So at some later time, after this meeting that he mentions in Jerusalem, Peter came north to Antioch. And he comes there and he sees Jews and Gentiles worshiping together with his own eyes. He sees Jews and Gentiles eating together, fellowshipping together. We don't think much about this. I mean, if you're, if you're at a restaurant and it's packed and it's just you and your spouse and you're sitting at a table for eight 
and a family of four comes up and says, would you mind if we sit here on this other end? If you're a halfway decent person, you say, go ahead, no problem. But in that culture, you would have said, I don't know. I don't know if you can eat with me. I don't know who you are. I don't know what your character is like. Because for you to eat at a table with me implies that I approve of you, that I consider you my equal, my friend, my, my, my brother. And I can't say that because I don't know you. And so for Jews and Gentiles to eat together was more than just sharing a meal. It, was, it implied equality. That was a big deal. So Peter comes up and he sees this. And he remembers Oh yeah, when I was in Caesarea in the home of Cornelius, God gave me that revelation that what God has created, don't call it unclean anymore. All these divisions don't matter. And so Peter was just enjoying eating with those Gentiles and, and probably eating some of their food too. Maybe Peter had his first taste of bacon. Who knows? Don't quote me on that. That's just speculation. But he was eating with Gentiles. He was embracing that new way of doing things until what Paul calls men from James. Now, James is the brother of Jesus. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church after Peter uh, first started things out. We don't know if these were men sent by James or if these were men who claimed James's authority. Regardless, they were men who came from Jerusalem and said, None of this needs to be happening. You, these Jews and Gentiles need to be separated. This is not the way it should go. And Peter listened. Now, have you ever, I'm not asking for anybody to say out loud, but have you ever in your life done something that you knew was wrong because you didn't want certain people to think less of you? Has anybody not done that? Isn't it comforting in a way to know that Peter one of the giants of the faith made that mistake. That he was doing what he knew was right, and then some people from Jerusalem came, and he thought, well, I don't want those guys to judge me. I don't want them to go back to Jerusalem and say Peter's you know, become a heretic, so I'm, I'm just going to pull away from these Gentile believers. And he was guilty in that moment of, of two things. He was guilty of hypocrisy, right? Because he was doing his religion in such a way that he cared more about what people thought of him than what God thought of him. That's the definition of hypocrisy. And he was guilty of legalism. See, one of legalism's crucial errors is in believing that the restrictive path is always the godly path. Often it is. Often following Jesus means choosing the narrow way, means choosing sacrifice and, and, and choosing hardship, but not always. Sometimes the harder path, sometimes the more restrictive path is not the right path. I'll give you an example. So, my first job on a church staff, I became the part-time youth minister of a church out in the country west of Fort Worth, um, and this was when I was in seminary. So I'd drive out there, Kira and I, every Wednesday night and Sunday uh, from Fort Worth. The pastor was a wonderful man. He's still there all these years later. Um, wonderful man. And most of the people in that church were fairly new Christians. Which is exciting. It's the only time in my life I've been in a church full of new Christians. But it was also frustrating because there was a lot of immaturity. There was a man in the church who felt called to preach. And so uh, Brother Jim, our pastor, uh, made him associate pastor, which just meant he got to come to staff meetings and he would preach when Jim was out. Uh, and he was a good guy. But yeah, 
One of the stages a lot of us go through when we're new Christians is this stage of legalism. We think, if I really love Jesus, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say no to all these things. That's my definition of what it means to be a godly person is all the things I say no to. And, and, and this, this man was going through that. Um, so one night we're having staff meeting and it's me and, and my friend, the, the music guy, who was also a seminary student, and then Brother Jim and then this associate pastor. And he brought up, um, we got, you know, Brother Jim, I see you keep bringing women up to lead in prayer from the pulpit. And, and Jim said, yeah, do you have a problem with that? And he says, well, a little bit. And he said, well, do you have a scriptural problem with that? And he said, well, not necessarily. I just don't think it's right. And Jim said, well, you know, can you, can you tell me why it's a problem? And he thought for a minute, he said, and I quote, I'm quoting here, he said, I guess it's okay if they pray out loud as long as they're not wearing pants. <laughs> he meant skirt. He, wanted, he meant they, wanted, they should be wearing skirts and not pants. Now, I know you can't find that in the Bible. But to him, well, if you give in on that, if you let uh, you know, pants-wearing women get up and pray out loud in a church, what's next? And we laugh. But we've all been there. And that's what Peter was going through. He, was, he, he, he said, I'm sure in his mind, what sure was fun eating with those Gentiles and eating their food. But that can't be right. I mean, you know, these brothers from Jerusalem are probably on the right path because they're taking the more restrictive path, the harder road. Yeah, I need to come back to them and, and eat only good kosher food. And those Gentiles need to get circumcised. So he was guilty of hypocrisy and legalism. Meanwhile, Paul and Barnabas are probably sitting over there saying, didn't we settle this back in Jerusalem? It keeps coming back. It keeps coming back up. And then there's the, the confrontation. My, my parents, I'm glad to say, didn't fight a lot growing up. We had a peaceful home. But occasionally they would get into it and raise their voices a little bit. And that was always really uncomfortable. Right. If you grew up in a home like mine, now if you grew up in a home where your parents fought all the time, maybe you got used to it. But for us, if we heard mom and dad arguing, well, we just want to go hide somewhere. That was really scary. I, I wonder if that's what it was like in Antioch when when Paul gets up in front of everybody and calls out Peter. And the way I picture it, they're in, they're in a room and there's all the Jewish Christians over here and all the Gentile Christians, and Paul just gets up and bangs his fists and says. All right, Cephas, I need, to, I need to talk to you. And in front of everybody says, you can't even live this Jewish law that you think is so great. Neither can I. So why do you think they can? Now, one of the things that bothers me about this is Matthew 18. You know, Jesus said, if somebody sins against you, go to them personally. And that's what I've always taught. If I even said it Sunday. If you've got a problem with me, come see me. Don't talk it over with a bunch of your friends. Come see me. Why does Paul call Peter out in front of everyone? Well, either Paul was sinning, and we'll find out in Judgment Day whether that's true or not, or Paul knew through the authority of the Holy Spirit that because this sin was so public and was, rid, was tearing the church apart, it had to be confronted publicly. Again, only God knows, but that's, I believe what happened and why it happened. This was a public sin that cut to the heart of what the gospel is all about.
So Paul goes on and explains what he was saying to Peter in verse 13. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Uh, there's, you could picture quote marks around that, right? Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, verse 16 is a verse that you know the old Paul would have gotten murderously angry if he had heard. So this shows the change in this man. It's the first time in this passage, in this letter, that is, in which two very important terms are brought up, justification and faith. Justify is the opposite of condemn. Picture uh, a court of law. And when the judge brings down his gavel and he says, you are not guilty or you are guilty. Well, with justification, the judge brings down his gavel and says, you're innocent. Not only are you not going to be punished, it's wiped off the books. Your record is expunged. You are free. That's to be justified. And then faith. Faith is the means of salvation, but it's not the source. That's important to make. Uh, That's an important distinction to make. We don't save ourselves through our faith. We save ourselves, or or, or God saves us through grace. But faith is the electrical cord that brings the power that saves us. The power comes from the power plant, right? So remember that. It's not the size of your faith. It's the size of the God in whom you have faith. You can have extremely weak faith, and we often do, and still be just as saved because God doesn't change. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Now, verse 17 is actually an old argument against the gospel. It keeps coming up over and over again. People who hear the gospel uh, secondhand or maybe even from Paul's own lips will say, oh, wow, if you keep preaching that, then people are just going to go out and sin willy-nilly. They're just going to do whatever they want because they're going to say, oh, I believe in Jesus and he's going to forgive me anyway so I can do what I want. That's the charge against the gospel, one of the charges. Whereas the law, they say, restrains sin. The law tells you what to do so that you know you're doing wrong or you know you're doing right. But Paul says the opposite is true. The law actually encourages sin. It actually leads us into greater sin. And he's going to give a fuller response to that charge later. Now, in verse 18, he says it's actually legalism that produces sin in our lives. When he says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor, in other words, a sinner. What he's saying is, okay, so I tore down the law and preached the gospel of grace. If I come back like Peter did, like these men from James did, and say, never mind, you need the law again, I will be sinning against the Gentiles. I'll be sinning against them by stealing from them their assurance of salvation. And I guarantee you that's a bigger sin than eating bacon. You know, Paul doesn't say that, but that's what he's saying. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. And here's the verse, the verse that I love. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In many ways, that's Christian discipleship in one verse. 
Um, this is the way we should live. This is, this is Paul's alternative to living by law. By law, you, you're paralyzed constantly going back to book after book and trying to figure out in this situation, what should I do? In that situation, what should I do? But here, there's freedom because it's simply Christ living in me. Well, how does that work? First, there's I am crucified with Christ. Christianity is not a religion in which you follow a list of rules and hope you get there. Christianity instead is a death. It is a death to the old life. It's where you say goodbye to the person you once were. This is why Jesus said you must be born again. This is why when we're baptized, we're baptized by immersion. Because this is not uh, holy water being poured out on us so we'll be blessed and be able to do good things. No, this is, this is a symbol of death to the old life. Buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life, as it says in Romans chapter 6. It is a death to the old life. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Jesus said that, he was inviting us to come die. Die to yourself. Don't be the same old person. And Paul talks about it all the time. You have died to your old life. You are no, I mean, just do a study of how many times he says that terminology. You've died. The person you were has died. And now you are renewed in Jesus. For Paul, the irony for Paul is, as he looked across the room and saw Peter segregating himself from those Gentile believers, I'm sure he thought to himself, yeah, that's the old life that I used to live. I don't live that way anymore, and neither should you. I used to try to impress people through my obedience to the law. I don't do that anymore. Now all I care about is Christ, Christ in me. The old me is dead. And then he says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So what does that mean? Well, just to give you an example. In 1 Corinthians 6.15, he's talking to Corinthians, and he's warning them against sexual immorality. And then he says something that if any... Modern day preachers said it in a sermon, people would be so scandalized they'd get up and walk out. He says, you know, your body is a temple of Christ. And so whatever you do, Christ is doing that. So when you go visit a prostitute, you're taking Jesus to see a prostitute. So don't do that anymore. What we do, Christ does. That's true not just of our sexual lives. It's true of our finances. It's true of our relationships. It's, it's true of our, our gifts and talents and the way we do our work. Everything we do, uh, the way we spend our time. And by the way, do you see now why legalism is so attractive? Because legalism makes things simple. All you have to do is follow this list of rules. And once you've got the rules down, then you can do whatever you want. It, it's sort of like, this is what I've compared it to. Getting married, and on the day, you know, right after your wedding, you know, honeymoon hadn't even started, and you say, okay, honey, give me a list of 20 things that I need to do for you. 20 things. Okay, how often do I need to say I love you? Okay, how often do I have to hug you? Okay, how many times? What chores am I responsible for? Just give me that list. And then every day, I'll go through the list, and I'll get it all done, and then the rest of the day is mine. And your new wife would say, why don't you just love me instead? No, 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 that's way too hard. No, no, that's, that's my whole life. That means my whole life has to be given to you. This way I can just knock out those rules and then the rest is all up to me. And that's what the Pharisees did. They thought of themselves as righteous, but they would say, you know, I, I can't help you, mom and dad, because I, I've dedicated this money to the Lord. And they thought they were being obedient. Whereas Jesus said, no, you're supposed to love your mother and father. 
That's what it means to obey me. Legalism is easier. It's simpler. It's easy to manipulate, whereas living for Christ is hard. It, it takes total dedication. And, and, and the part of the problem with Christ living in you is you never know what Jesus is going to ask you to do. He might ask you to embrace a, embrace a leper, right? He might ask you to, uh, to sacrifice some aspect of your life that you think is sacred. He, he might ask you to be the, the one everybody else uh, judges so that he can glorify himself through you. And yet, that's what Paul is saying. That's what discipleship is. It's, I no longer live Christ in me. It's not my life. It's his. And then he says, I live by faith in the Son who gave himself for me. And that's the other side of the picture. You can trust Jesus. You can give yourself willingly to him because you can say, wait a second, he died for me. Why am I worried about loving him completely and giving my life to him when he's already proven he loves me more than I even love myself? He's not going to do anything to me. He's not going to ask me to do anything that's not absolutely necessary. We can trust him. And again, to, to compare it to marriage. If you've got a good wife, loving her is not a sacrifice. It's a reward. Now, it's still hard. There, there are times when you have to say no to yourself. But for instance, you know, when I, when I, get married, when I got married to Carrie, I didn't say to myself, oh, doggone it, I've got to stick with just one woman now. No, I was, I was like, I get to stick with this woman. That's, all, that's outstanding. And that's what our faith in Christ is. Once we know how good he is, we're not upset that he lives through us. We're thrilled that he lives through us because now we're starting to become the people we've always hoped to be. And then finally, verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And that's, that's really the punctuation, isn't it? If the legalists are right, those men from James, then Jesus died for nothing. Think about that. Why would Jesus die on a cross if we still have to perform in order to be accepted? We always need to watch out because the gospel is always under attack. And it, the attack will often come from within the church and often from within ourselves. As we hold ourselves to standards that God doesn't hold us to, as we judge other people in the church for things that don't matter, as we refuse to forgive people for the ways that they've failed us and let us down. There's so many ways that the gospel is under attack. So back to verse 14, I'll leave, with, leave you with this. He says about, about those men, men from James, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. The gospel is always under attack. That means the enemy will try to get you to deny it by the way you live. And constantly ask that question. Is my life in step with the truth of the gospel? Is the way that I live proof to the world that the gospel is true? Because there's a difference between that and being devoutly religious. You must be that, but you can be that without having your life in step with the gospel. On the one hand, the person who's devoutly religious without being true to the gospel, that's one of the most repugnant things in the world. Nobody wants that. Nobody's drawn to that. But the person whose life is in step with the truth of the gospel, 
That's one of the most attractive things in the world because that's what the world is missing. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Galatians 2, and I thank you, Lord, that you equipped Paul and Barnabas to stand strong for the gospel. We know that they're not the ones who won the day. You did, and yet you used them. And because you preserved the gospel, people like us could be saved. Help us to walk each day and step with the gospel. Help us to live our lives through you and for you to live through us. And I pray that others would see that grace in us that they're missing. For it's in Jesus' name I pray all these things. Amen.